expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Here we are at episode 174 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where, Nick, I think this is one of the few times where you can actually see dominoes rise instead of fall. God damn you. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. But no, what we're going to talk about right now is, of course, this week they showed, they should say they revealed, they being Ryan Reynolds and, you know, the people that work on Deadpool 2 released. The first photo of Zazie Beats as Domino in her full-on, you know, Domino getup, and I'm just gonna say this, man. I understand that comic book nerds, a lot of them, and we've talked about it too, and how we've we're kind of this way as well. When it comes to certain iterations of characters being put into live action or some sort of book or some sort of whatever property, yeah, you want them to look as close as their comic book counterpart as possible but then you get ones like this with beats playing domino and it actually for at least for me represents a kind of a, refre- of a refreshing difference a refreshing change kind of yeah if anything they just kind of flipped it on its head a little bit yeah and then they just <laughs> that's made it all they different. did that's, they a, that's exactly what they did i mean they they just made it almost the exact opposite of what it was in the comics and you know this is deadpool okay Right. You know there's going to be some fourth wall joke about canon and all this other stuff and about right. how she doesn't look right or something. You know that's going to be there. But I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I'm like, I dig it. I just dig the look. And she looks like she's got that good attitude about her. And how many times have we said this on the show? Like a million where as long as they are the person that's right for the part and they do a good job yes. and they do the character justice, I don't give a shit what they look like. <laughs> and plus, uh, you know, I... I talking about this on social media and I said I go listen if you're somebody who is crying about well she's you know albino she needs to have white skin stuff like that it's like you know you do still have the comics so you can still read those and just not see the fucking movie yeah you're gonna be a bitch like that and the thing is is I and people need to realize this too is that even if they made her comic book accurate in terms of appearance people would still bitch yeah and they would find something to be upset about. But, I mean, you see the picture of her laying on Deadpool, like, you know, kind of with Dead, what they did with Deadpool 1 uh, a couple years ago with him laying in front of the fireplace, but she's yep. using him as the rug. Like, she looks like she has that great domino attitude, man. It's somebody who can match wits with Wade and somebody who will, in a sense, kind of, you know, put him in his place a little bit. And I like that, man. I like the afro. I like the getup. I love it. I really, really do. I'm going to throw this out there, too. Negasonic Teenage Warhead didn't look in the movie like she did in the comics, either. Nobody looked like they did in the comics from the first movie outside of, like, Colossus and Deadpool. And Deadpool. That was really it. Exactly. But <laughs> we've got to get used to this stuff. I mean, if you if you watch, like, Arrow and Flash, I mean, anything from Marvel and right. DC at all, they're doing different takes for the most part. I mean, hell, even Supergirl's costume is a little bit different than it plus, is in the comics for the most part. Plus, you got to understand this, too, is when movie studios, and this is true, when movie studios are putting together what costumes are going to look like for comic book adaptations and stuff, listen, cosplay is a much more bigger thing now than it was years ago. So they've got to be more mindful of that, like, okay, how can, you know, even though there are a lot of great cosplayers out there, not everybody has the means, the money, 
or sometimes even though you know they're starting out, so they don't really have the talent to make these amazing, you know, professional looking suits. But it's like, okay, what can we give them to make them, you know, hey, like Batgirl's new costume, for example, just get some like yellow rubber boots, uh, you know, a vest, stuff like that, and it's fine. Yeah, I think that. I don't know how we're not at a stage where we're not okay with this yet, but I know that you're always going to have those nerds that are always going to, like you said, always going to bitch, always going to find something to not like about anything. So I guess the best thing that we can do for the rest of us is just ignore them and just enjoy what we have because, I mean, are there going to be times where we don't like what a character looks like for certain reasons? Sure. And yes, right. we'll talk about that, but I'm going to give you a damn good reason if I don't like the way that the suit is done or whatever. I'm going to give you a damn good reason. I'm not just going to bitch to bitch because it doesn't look like the comics. And let me just say this, too, is when I talk about the whole back roll thing with the whole, you know, you have the yellow boots, you have the cape and stuff like that. And, you, you, you know, what, what's one thing we talk about? Some of this, one of the least, one of the biggest complaints I've had or not had but have heard uh, had to do with the Spider-Man movies uh, up until Homecoming, which was, man, how can this high school kid have this all his skills to make that professional look of a costume. And then, lo and behold, Marvel finds a way of like, oh, well, Tony Stark made him his yep. new suit. But when he's not in that suit, he's wearing this homemade suit. So, you know, that's the thing. Is you want to put characters in, in outfits and costumes that people can look at and say, you know, I can make that. And that's not going to take a lot of time. It's not going to take, you know, be a bitch to make. And, for example, like, look at fucking Aquaman. Yeah, I know he had the, the long hair and the beard, stuff like that in the comics, and he's still and in the current run he has it now. But Jason Momoa looks badass. I love the take they did with with them. And what, what was people's re- reactions with that? Oh, he's not blonde. He's not this. Right. He's got long hair. Right. Oh my god, what do you want, fucking, like, Super Friends, Justice League? You know, what the fuck, man? Right, exactly, that would be an interesting cast, and good luck finding that exact look for somebody that can actually act. Right. <laughs> <You know>? Come <laughs> on, just do what you want to do, but, you know, if you're going to do that, if you and again, on the flip side of that, though, if you're going to do that, and you're going to make a total change to a character, you better make it work, because that's really going to set fans and, into a tizzy if you don't. And my thing, too, as you mentioned earlier, is the fact, like, it's Deadpool. There's going to be a fourth wall joke possibly somewhere where he makes it, she makes it, somebody else makes it, where it's like, oh, you know, she doesn't look like she does in the comics. And he's like, well, fuck it, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not upset about it, man. It's 2017, you know. You got to accept it. I mean, it's – and, like, again, she's an amazing actress. I've seen right. her work. You know, she's really, really good. So They're lucky I to have her, Ronald Reynolds. Yeah, man. They're lucky I mean, to have shit. Her. You know, it's just, I, I don't get people, man. It's just, you know, I understand that nerds can be very protective of stuff in nerd culture and, and just changing of things. But, you know, when you get a great actress like Zazie Beetz in there and you have the vision of Ryan Reynolds and stuff like that and how big and great the first Deadpool movie was, have some faith. Yeah, have some faith. Suck it up and give it a chance. And come up next, it's what we're reading. Find out what books we reviewed this week. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, folks, it's that time of the week. We pull out our long boxes, and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, both of our books this week, even though they're from different publishers, both deal with reptiles. I'm going to have you go first with yours. It's actually something that we kind of uh, promoted on the show a while back. Actually, it was free comic book day. Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot, actually, and that's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Dimension X number one, which is written by Paul Aller, and Pablo Tunica does the art. Sean Lee does the letters, and an amazing cover, by the way, by Nick Patara. Just amazing, amazing stuff. And this is the Trial of Krang. We've been talking about this 
for a long, long time. So Krang's going on trial, trial in Dimension X. But here's the basic. Here's the basis of the story. Krang's actually hired Hackr, which if you're not familiar with Hackr, cybernetic assassin type deal, to actually kill off all the witnesses against him. So there's nobody to testify against him, and Krang can just go free. And that's kind of where this story picks up. And of course, it's the turtle's job to stop said assassination. So they're traveling around in this cramped thing and they're all upset with each other because, you know, you're time, you know, four teenagers in a cramped space, you know, if you're a parent at all of any age of child, yeah, that's not going to be easy. And there's no master splinter to kind of make them all get along. So that's an interesting dynamic. Now I will say this, I'm not going to spoil a lot of this and there's a lot that I could spoil, but I'm not going to. The first planet they go to for the first witness I laughed. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. The first witness against Krang is so funny looking. And the concept is so funny to me that I couldn't help but laugh. But then what's, what's, what makes you kind of feel like an ass as you get to the middle of this book is th- this thing, and I'm really trying hard not to describe this. This thing, <laughs> this thing goes into detail about what Krang did oh. to people. <laughs> so you really feel like an asshole for laughing in the beginning. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm like, like, I'm like, oh man. It's, it's like I never knew. It's, you look at it, you're like, oh, that's kind of a funny looking thing. And then in the middle, it's like Krang held a blowtorch to my face and killed my entire family. It's not good, man. It's really, really not. I'm like, ah. So I guess I can warn you about that much at least. Try not to have too much fun with it in the beginning. But it's still I, a Turtles comic, you know? I'm, I'm just wondering. I haven't read the, the book yet, so I'm going to do it over the weekend. But I'm really hoping that if this ever got like a, a live action interpretation, like the trial of Krang, that they have like the people's court theme, they have like some narrator going, you know, some plaintiff, or whatever, and then all of a sudden Krang walks in. The defendant Krang has been wanted for multiple murders and trying to take over the world in many directions. He's being sued for X amount of dollars. And that is, that'd be great. Like, if you just had, like, that and made, like, an actual trial, like, you watch, like, during, you know, garbage time TV, that'd be hilarious. I could handle that. You know, get Judge Mills Lane up there, something like Judge Mills Lane. She's still alive. No, I don't think so. But, I mean, if they could bring, if they could bring back that guy for Rogue One, why not do this? And that is very I true. Mean, why, why not do this? But, I mean, what's kind of cool is, is that... You know, you've got this assassin in Hack R, and you think that, you know, it's just a guns blazing type of assassin, and that's kind of not the tactic that he takes in this book, which I think is really cool. And, of course, there's some, there's some good Turtles action, as there always is in these books. And Paul Aller just knows how to write the Turtles, man. I mean, the IDW is so lucky in that they've got such a strong stable of writers and creators working on these Turtles books. But there's just something special about the way Paul Aller writes, writes the Turtles and the relationship between the brothers themselves. And, of course, the... The end of the book, you know, you're kind of moving on to the next portion. You can tell that they're very much not done with this. And, you know, there's going to be more witnesses that need to save. So it's almost like these these issues almost feel like they're going to be in a bottle other than the, you know, the main antagonists and protagonists will be the theme of the story. But you're going to have different witnesses that they're going to need to save every time. So it's almost like going to be a new issue every time, which I think is a neat idea. So pretty much, you know, we talked about this with Kevin Eastman a while back. Of course, he's the one of the co-creators of TMNT about, you know, Dimension X. And, you know, we talked about this book for a while, man. It sounds like it's a uh, something that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, it's definitely a winner. I mean, it's it's definitely a pull for me, and of course, more great art in the book as well. I mentioned that before. I mean, you just you just can't lose with this title. You really can't. And I want to give a congratulations to everybody, Kevin Eastman, and everybody involved with Turtles. Of course, their ongoing series just set a record, longest running ongoing Turtle Turtle series ever. So, congrats to IDW and everybody involved in TMNT. Well deserved because you guys have been putting out some great great books. That they have, man. AEW and Turtles, it's, they're literally, you want to talk about marriage made in heaven? Those two things have been perfect since day one. Oh, yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before in the opening of the segment, that both of us did books that had to do with reptiles. And mine also started with a T. This person, however, is not a teenager. And it's Turok. And, of course, Turok, you know, from the, the video games, Turok, Dinosaur Hunter, and all those other great things uh, throughout the many years. And basically... The book is split up into two things. There's two stories. There's the main Turok story, which is written by Chuck Wendig, and the art is done by Alvaro Saresca. Then you have the secondary backup story of Doc Spector, which is written by our boy Aubrey Sitterson. The art's done by Dylan Burnett. I'm a pretty much mostly talking about the Turok book because it's such, you know, it's the main part of the book. So Turok takes place on the Lost Valley, which is pretty much a prehistoric jungle that exists basically in all points of time. And it's one of those books where it's set in a world where a fascist race of people, in this case dinosaur people, are ruling with an iron fist. And they're basically enslaving people and stuff like that. You know, very horrific shit. And the people that are ruling are called the uh, Vernon Empire. And so the book is ter- pretty much, at least the first issue of Turok, deals with Turok and his other couple of characters being transported to this new prison, and where, of course, they're going to be enslaved and held in captivity and stuff like that. And I will say this, in terms of the art, the art is really, really good. It, you know, this is a book that prides itself when it talks about its setting. That it's not really this almighty lush setting. It's mm. hot. It's you know, you see a lot of burnt oranges, a lot of browns. You know, right. Turok is more of a darker complexion in this book, and the way that you know his skin. You know, there's a part where he's like leaning up against uh, uh, this back of this cart and are being transported, basically, and he is. You know, and, his, and the way that his skin looks against the, the, the wall there, it's beautiful. That's that's really good, actually, because, I mean, we've had, you know, problems before where with Dynamite books, especially where the cover art is just fantastic. And then the interior art is a little bit of a letdown. So from what I'm getting from you on this, that's not the case here. No, not at all, man. This is one of those cases where the art is good both inside and out. I got to say this, man, the, of course, the, the, the fascist regime of dinosaur people look really, really well done. And here's, and again, this book does something that I cannot stress enough. When they have characters in the background or of a certain distance, they give detail to their faces. So they're not like, oh, well, this person's X amount of feet behind this other character who's talking, I'm going to put like a line, two lines for eyes and a line for mouth, and that's it. There is detail deep within this thing. I mean, you can well look, done. 
I mean, there's detail. Even when they, like, they show outside of buildings, there's like an opening. You can see the detail of doors. You can see the detail of wires hanging and stuff like that. It is really, really spectacular. Now, as far as the story goes, this is your typical kind of, at least to me, run-of-the-mill, you know, we're going to dismantle this, you know, regime from the inside out. And, you know, you have this kind of like ragtag group of characters you know these people who have met kind of like guardians of the galaxy type of a feel really but not as joking this is a much see this is a very serious book uh and story well there's a little bit of uh comedy in there but it's not you know it's, it's not too much not overbearing when i look at this book and I, I see the story i've seen it before i mean it's great that they have the different characters and the different species of people and stuff like that in there but Overall, man, I mean, it's not a book that I was, like, grabbed by, per se. I will say this. There are some interesting things they do. For example, there's kind of a Mad Max feel in all this as well, which is pretty interesting. And uh, overall, this for me is a pickup because, again, I wasn't, like, in love with the book. I wasn't really in love with the story. I've seen the story being told with different characters, of course, multiple times. Right. So, overall, I mean, even though the art is really, really good, and the action is really, really good in this, yeah, it's, it's a pickup for me, man. Uh, again, it's not a bad book. It's just, um, you know, it's just it's, it's something that it's just a pickup. You know, it didn't blow me, really blow me away. It's interesting, but it didn't blow me away. I'll just say that. Yeah, you just want to see where it goes at this point. I mean, maybe you'll yeah. be better in issue two, and it'll, it'll end up being a pull. Maybe it won't. We'll just see. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that when you're, I'm also reading Exo Man of War from Valiant. And it kind of, you know, when you have, and they're both kind of the same story arcs a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. So that's also kind of playing into my review as well, yeah. because it's, it's hard to not compare, you know, one of the two. That's fair. And that's going to do it for what we're reading to come next. We both saw Tom Blonde over the weekend, but what do we think about it? Find out. Hey, this is Dewey Reviews from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, for this week in Geek Tamer, we're going to head to 1980s Berlin, and hopefully we'll find our way over the wall, because we're going to talk about Atomic Blonde, of course, the spy movie, or is it, starring Charlize Theron? Man, I don't know what the fuck this movie wanted to be. <laughs> I really don't. There were times, man, this is the, was the movie's biggest problem. The fight scenes, they were good, but my thing is, is that if you've seen the trailers, you've basically seen all the fight scenes, like literally, or at least a good three quarters of them. But there were times in this movie where you mentioned the Berlin Wall. You mentioned that this is the 1980s Berlin. There are movies, I want to bring up another movie called The Town. Of course, that was a Ben Affleck, Jeremy Renner, Bank Heist film set in Boston. What made that movie so memorable to me was the fact that Boston itself was a character. Car chases going through those narrow alleys. You mean, you used to live in New England. You know what it's all about, man. Those narrow streets yep. and stuff like that of Boston. Yep. Made you feel claustrophobic. Made you feel like you were in the van with the guys as they were doing that heist. You're like, oh my God, I don't know if they can get out of that. With this, it's, hey, she's under, she's, you know, investigating this murder of an agent. And then, by the way, she's got to get this other guy through safety on the other side of Berlin. But it's like, I felt that when I was watching this movie, the whole concept of the Berlin Wall and being in 1980s Berlin was lost because they wanted to make this about the mission. And 
again, the mission is something we've seen a million times where it's, okay, there's this list and it's got all the names of the agents on there and we got to retrieve the list before the agents, you know, get killed and everybody's, you know, is, is made and stuff like that. I didn't hate the movie. I just felt there's a lot of missed opportunities with it. It ended up actually making me really confused at the ending as well. Well, I understand what you're saying. Spoilers very much ahead, by the way, in case you haven't noticed that already with our reviews that we do. But um, <clears throat> here's the deal. I understand. What, I, I don't disagree with you about the fight scenes, by the way. The, the, I, I will say that probably the best fight scene was not in the trailer, and that was the stairway fight scene, which I thought was the best one. And can I just say this? There was one thing I did love about the fight scenes. The fact that these sons of bitches just wouldn't stay down. I mean, right. ridiculous. <laughs> like that one part where she, you think she's gotten away, she's in the car with spyglass, and then the dude jumps back up and tries to get, get at her in the car, and I'm like, I, I, this guy's got a lot of commitment to his job. I mean, <laughs> he's practically dead. And he's going to jump on the car and try and still get her anyway, even though he's had uh, a, a screw-top uh, wine cork thing stuck in his eye a few times or something. I don't get this guy, man. Well, I mean, that's one thing I liked about the fight scenes is that they're, you know, when you have these sorts of fight scenes, even going back with John Wick, you want what interests you the most about the fight scenes is, okay, how many ways can a person kick somebody's ass, you know, and, and, and with what, you know, like, I mean, here's a part where like in the beginning when she gets to Berlin, she's like literally punching the guy in the throat with a high heel stiletto. Yep, yep. Like, I mean, you know, you're like, holy shit. Now, of course, this is based on the only press graphic novel series, the Cold city. And here's the thing with this too, is this is a movie where it is super different from the graphic novel. Way different. They took, they took a lot of liberties in changing things and trying to make it more interesting. And, again, going back to the whole Berlin Wall thing, if, she, if you made it this thing where, okay, the body or whatever is on the opposite side, it's in West Berlin or whatever, where the KGB is, is their, the stronghold, or East Berlin, you know, okay, you're there. If they made it, we're like, okay, she's got to like try to infiltrate the KGB in order to get the body and get it back home and all this other stuff and investigate. Like, if it was like, you know, a real legit John Wick meets kind of Tinker Taylor soldier spy where you have somebody that has to infiltrate this, you know, this, this government, this piece of government, and you make it that thrilling thing and not just focus on just action, 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 I think that could have been added another layer because. Again, you're building on that Berlin Wall theme, and you're also building on that, oh, my God, will she escape or won't she? And what right. will happen? To me, that was the missed opportunity more than anything else was the will or won't she escape thing. But before we go any further, I'm going to tell you exactly how I felt about this movie. And, and I know this isn't what they were going for, and I'm, I'm not sure if they will appreciate this or not. But to me, this movie was not a spy movie at all. No, it was, it was a, not. It was basically a upgraded version of a late 80s, early 90s, Jean-Claude Van Damme-esque, Steven Seagal type movie for me. It was an action movie where it, pretend, right. it pretended to have a story to keep you interested in where the plot was going. But it was basically about the action and about what Charlize Theron and, and to a certain extent, uh, James McAvoy we're doing considering he was the main antagonist in the movie all along, by the way, which you kind of knew, but that was the other beauty part about those movies. You knew who the bad guys were. You pretty much knew what the outcomes were going to be, you know, and, and that's why it didn't bother me. 
But see, that, I want to build on what you just said. I knew from the opening, and I know I just said a while back that the ending was confusing, but I knew from the first act who the mole was, who was on what side. Like, And the problem with that is they try to build up the entire hour plus this movie's going of who is, you know, who is Satchel? Who is this double agent? We don't know, you know, stuff like that. It's like, motherfucker, I know who the person is. No. Stop trying to be fucking coy with me. What's funny is it's like they acted like they wanted to hide it, but then deliberately didn't. But it's like... That, was, see, the, that was the funny thing about it. But see, for me, it wasn't funny. It was more like a lack of commit. It's like, commit to this or fucking don't. Like, you know, don't don't have one leg on the wall, you know, and, and, and just stay there. You know, commit or don't commit. And also, Spyglass, you're going to name a fucking... Oh my god, you're going to name a, a fucking character in this spyglass that's like the object of this movie why not name him hi my name is agent or, or secret weapon or where the fuck you know spyglass can come up with a better fucking name i mean holy shit i i don't know that that's really a, a problem for me but i just it's think like that... dude it's like me going to a it's like me being a spy and saying what's your code name one armed man's my code name <laughs> It, well, it is a terrible code name for a spy. That's that's absolutely true. You're, yeah, you're calling him Spyglass. That's probably not uh, probably not the way to go. But I, I I just think that this this movie acted like it wanted to focus on one thing, but it focused the one thing it focused on was the action and making sure that they had good fight scenes, and that again, like a Jean Claude Van Damme movie from the '90s, was always the focus you didn't give a damn whether or not he was a cop or he was undercover or whether he was going to get out of the prison or wasn't getting out of the prison you wanted him to kick somebody's ass and that's what you were watching it for and to me for atomic blonde you don't look for in depth of story. i didn't go there for depth of story i it would be nice if we got one i went there to see Charlize theron and and company kick somebody's ass and i think that she certainly succeeded in that I did too. Like I like I don't want people thinking I went to this thinking I was gonna get like a James Bond 007 thing because I will say this. I went in this knowing and and thinking to myself, okay, I'm gonna see you know a, a John Wick S style movie set in Berlin in the 1980s before the fall of Berlin Wall. You know that's that's what I'm going in to see. So don't think I'm going in this thinking like. Okay, I'm going in here thinking that I'm going to get this deep story. But my thing is, is when you do tell a story in the end of a movie, no matter how baseless or no matter how empty or full it might be, don't make it to the point where it's confusing and and try and do too much or too little. And because when I was when I got to the because when she's not kicking people's ass and she's like going through the actual run of the mill. I was kind of bored by it because I'm like, I just don't care because to me there was no suspense in all of this, you well, know? Well, and when they do finally reveal at the end that she was basically a triple agent, you, you, you couldn't care. I mean, it was like, huh, okay, well, that's an interesting way to go. No, but, because but, but I you, knew. But you don't really, but, but at the same time, you don't really, you it, there was no payoff there. And I, yeah. I think that they wanted there to be, but there really wasn't. I mean, was it was it an interesting kind of huh sort of thing? Sure it was. But did it leave me going, no way. No, it didn't. It was an, it was an, it was a nice little twist, but it wasn't enough because I guess you didn't really build her up enough. And you didn't build there was not a whole lot of character building other than James McAvoy's character Percival, which 
I hated from the get-go. Oh, so I fucking hated him. If they succeeded in anything, you made me hate Percival so much that through the entire movie, I wanted to see him dead. But but here's the problem with that, too, is that he was so hateable. He didn't have any redeeming qualities. And this is a problem with a lot of spy movies and a lot of spy books and just stuff in the spy genre. Whenever you have a focus on two people, in this case, you have Lorraine you know, Broughton, who's played, of course, by Shirley Saren. You have David Percival, who's played by James McAvoy. And they both are agents, but they somehow find ways to foil the other's plan or try to alter each other's plan, even though they're supposedly supposed to be on, quote, unquote, the same side. You, by doing that, make it too easy to see, okay, the focus is going to be on one of these two people, and, yep, I was right, it's this person. You know, when I when I watched this, again, as you mentioned, there's just no payoff for me. When there was that reveal where she's like the triple agent, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, she's MI6. Well, really, she's, you know, the head of this Russian KGB or whatever. And it's like, oh, no, she's actually, you know, worked for the U.S. government, the CIA. It's like, <clears throat> I don't care, man. I wasn't sitting my – again, like you, I wasn't sitting in my seat going, oh, no way. I was like, yeah, I, I saw that coming. Like, it wasn't surprising for me, man. And, uh, again, I just felt that this was a movie where it just had a lot of missed opportunities. and. Yeah. If this movie fails in one thing more than anything else, yeah, it's that she put up with his shit way too long. Yeah, like clearly she. Knew, oh yeah, clearly she knew almost all along. You would think maybe not in the very beginning, but certainly long enough that she could have done something about this sooner. And maybe yeah. maybe it was a failing in the way she went about it. I guess mm-hmm. more than anything else, or or because it clearly she wasn't ignorant of it so what what was it so to me if the movie fails in anything that was the biggest failing for me well the problem with the movie i have with the movie too is the fact that what's one of the lines that is said by her superiors of course her superiors you know being <clears throat> john goodman and uh toby jones what well, was the first thing that they were talking about when you go on this mission don't trust anyone right but what does she do there are scenes where she does things and she trusts people, and you're kind of like, what are you doing? I can see this person has ill intentions a mile away. For example, when she finds out, this is a spoiler, when she finds out that Percival put a bug in her coat, it's like, and she remembers, oh, that's right, he had his coat, and he walked away, and he made that line of like, oh, if you know, if I did bug you or I did whatever, if I should try to listen on you, you wouldn't see me or whatever. Right. It's like... When somebody walks away with something of yours in front of you, wouldn't you, as this big-time triple agent, whatever you are, inspect it for shit? Who was like, also a spy? That? Who was yes! also a spy? Yes! Holy shit, it's spy versus spy, man. Like, there's just stuff where it's like, they're building you, they're trying to build her up as this great spy, and then it's like, and then people say, well, she's just, maybe she's just trying to show she's human. It's like, and letting her guard down. It's like... Um, no, because she's been, she's been, she makes it clear that she knew about Percival basically from the fucking beginning. But here's the thing. They don't build them, either one of them up that they're great spies. They're, they're basically like, I don't want to say screw ups because it's not quite to that level. They're, they're outcasts. They know how to fight. They know how to fight and that's yeah, pretty much it. and that's pretty much it. So they don't, I don't think they really built them up to be great spies and that's why I didn't feel like this was a spy movie, despite their their want their their wanting it to be. It was an action movie that was set in the eighties. That was from the eighties, basically. That's basically what they gave us. And 
as somebody who loved those movies back in the day and will still enjoy them as a guilty pleasure now, that's why I was able to enjoy this because once I figured everything out, I was like, oh, so this what this is what this is. I kicked back with my popcorn and I was like, all right, let's kick some ass. <laughs> but again, I just think that, you know, you look at some of the other characters around these main characters, you know, especially Sophia Botella, who plays Delphine LaSalle. I didn't really feel a connection between her and Charlize either. Like the scene where like she's being killed by David Percival. And I'm talking about uh, Sophia Botella's character. I'm like, I didn't have that feeling of, you know, this is somebody who I've seen throughout the movie and I've grown accustomed to, to and stuff like that. And that's one of the, also the, the big failings of this movie too, is that this movie does a couple of things and they try to do too much is, is that they try to make you on your, keep you on your heels as to who you can and cannot trust and they also do it, but in the meantime of doing that, they also make it to where you can't trust these people, but you also at the same time cannot feel for these people as well. Right, and when they, when Sophia Batella's character had that moment of, I'm smarter than you think I am kind of thing, again, that, there really wasn't any payoff there for me. It was like, oh, okay, so she took pictures of him. And, and no, there wasn't really a build-up for it. Right, well, there wasn't a build-up for anything to do with her character, if we're being completely honest. I mean, there wasn't a build-up for her and Charlize Theron's relationship. There was really no build-up to any of it. And, I mean, they tried to add depth to it, but they did it in such a short time span that you didn't really care that much and I mean it's kind of a waste of, of her talents I think to be in Sophia Batella but I mean I, again the, these kinds of movies and I mean movies like the ones I've been describing aren't supposed to have depth so I mean maybe they fell into that on accident clearly they did because I don't think this is what they were going for like I said I don't think what my thought about this movie is, is what they were going for but that's what they fell into if you can go into this movie with that mindset you will enjoy this movie but if you're going into it thinking it's going to be a John Wick or any kind of a decent spy movie you're going to be sorely disappointed yeah, I mean, that's the problem, too, is that, you know, people are saying, well, this is the, you know, this is, you know, James Bond-esque. It's like, no, because James Bond was memorable. It had memorable villains. It has memorable lines. There was not a line in this movie that I can remember, to be honest. Even, like, when I left the theater, there was nothing that really stuck with me in terms of lines. So, I mean, I'm looking at this whole thing, man, and I'm just thinking, you know, again, I like the action scenes. Granted, again, you saw a lot of them when, in the trailers and stuff like that and the clips they released. But overall, I, eh, this is just this is just very a meh movie for me. And I will say this: I think the best part of this movie that I liked outside of the fight sequences was the soundtrack because it had yeah. me dancing in my seat. I mean, it was that '80s Euro pop, Euro rock, you know, type of music. You had Nine Nine Love Balloons, you had the Pesh Mode, who I yep. really love, you know. So I mean, the soundtrack, in a sense, you want to talk about the action scenes. The soundtrack really did the best it could and did a really good job of amplifying those scenes and again going back to the town what made the chase scene so great is the sense of like oh my god we're not gonna get out we're not gonna get out whereas with this in the chasing the main chase scene with her and spyglass in the police car even though they're you know berlin is divided at that time you know east into east and west it still felt very wide open i didn't get that feeling of you know, oh my God, they're in this tight space. Even a French Connection vibe where, oh my God, yeah. they're in tight traffic and stuff like that. I didn't get that, man. So I think the best part of this movie is two things. The fight scenes was good and the soundtrack was amazing. Yeah, and the cops were no obstacle at all on either oh side. Oh my God, so, no. So that, was, that, was the other, that was the other thing where I was like, you know, you could have done something with that and made that like a third element, but, but they didn't do that. And, and again, you just add that to the list. 
So I think we might as well just give our final ratings, man. You can go first. So, I mean, I don't want, again, I don't want people to think that I was trashing this movie either because once I realized what it was and, and I actually really enjoyed it. And I, luckily for me, I realized this early on and I think Charlize Theron was very, very good in this movie for a lot of reasons. And you could tell, you know, that women can seriously kick some ass and Charlize Theron really, really proved that. And she took her beatings too, which I thought was a, a good part of this movie was that, you know, they didn't make her indestructible. I didn't even see her use a gun until right towards the end of the movie too, which I thought was very, very interesting as far as, as far as a weapon's concerned. She was kind of taking people out without it, which I thought was really neat. So I, I just think that there were other characters that they could have done more with. Obviously we talked about that. The Percival character I hated. So good, good job on that. And to me again, this is a Van Damme, Steven Seagal type movie from the early 90s, late 80s. And once you realize that, you can enjoy it. And as somebody who loved the hell out of those movies and could see this as kind of being one of those guilty pleasure movies, that's why, I mean, as, as much as it's, it's, it's difficult for me to do this, it's really not. I'm going to go ahead and give this six giant stashes of Jordache jeans out of ten. <laughs> All right, so here's here's my thoughts on it. Again, I think that this movie don't go don't I don't want people to think that I hate this movie. I don't, I don't want people thinking I left the movie and was like fuck this movie. It's just this is one of those movies where again I knew what I was going to get into where I was like okay this is going to be the female version of John Wick. I know the type of story I'm probably going to get going into this. And even though I knew all that, there was just some missteps where I'm like, man, this could have been memorable. Or they, or they had done this with the, the setting, or they utilized the setting this way, or they did some of these characters differently, or whatever. You know, especially for a movie that took a lot of creative liberties. It's like, man, it just was a lot of missteps. There's things that, you know, I was sitting through the entire movie thinking, well, I would have done this differently. Why well, would I have done that differently? You know, and, and stuff like that. And I didn't hate the movie. There were some good parts of it. But. Overall, it's not a memorable movie. It's not really even a movie I would watch on Netflix. I think this would be a movie that maybe you put on the background if you're having a party or a get-together. Maybe. But overall, again, Shelley Theron did a great job in this. I'm not saying that she didn't. She did a really great job. As you mentioned, James, I like the fact that they didn't make her indestructible. That She did in those fights. And she did take her licks. So I think overall... When I look at this movie from that standpoint and just what they did, again, this is just a movie where I felt there's a lot of missteps and a lot of missed opportunities. And again, the ending, it was one of those things where it's kind of like it wasn't shocking to me and it kind of confused me at the end. And then I thought about it again and it was less confusing. But again, it's just a movie that doesn't know what it wants to be. Even though it has a great soundtrack, the cast is really good. I mean, you got John Goodman in there, Toby Jones, Charles Theron, James McAvoy. Really good actors. I'm going to kind of follow suit with you. I'm going to give this 6 out of 10 watches with many different hidden compartments. <laughs> and, and I think that that's fair because will I remember this movie in, in, in a year? Probably not. But if I saw it on and I wasn't really doing anything like you said, yeah, it might be something that I threw on just for the hell of it just to watch Charlie's there and kick some ass. And that's going to do it for a review of Atomic Blonde. But come up next... We have some nerd news. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, the writer of Micronauts, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time of the show. We go around the internet and we see what's trending. It's time for... Nerd News! 
we did a story a while back about Netflix and how they said that, hey, by a certain date, we want to ensure that at least, I believe it was 50% or 60 or more of the percentage of their programming be original content. Basically meaning, hey, all those movies that we had on there, all those TV shows that we had on there, yeah, we're going to get rid of a bunch of those. And a lot of our stuff's going to be Stranger Things. It's going to be, you know, bright and stuff like that. Well, it turns out, according to a report, that Netflix is apparently $20 billion in debt right now because of that plan, it looks like. Yeah, and I mean, that is long-term debt, but still, it is still debt. I mean, when you're $20.54 billion exactly in debt, that doesn't spell good news for you. And I mean, it's not like their subscriptions are are rising at a rapid rate. I mean, there was a 10% surge in one month, sure, but you know, the stock's up 50% as well. So I mean, those things are all a good sign, but when you're tracking $20.54 billion in debt and you just moved to a 14-story building in California, that's a lot of debt. So, especially since you're not running ads, we never want them to run ads, but I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of people that don't have Netflix, you know what I mean? So how are they going to recoup this long-term debt? Well, you think about it too, outside of, you know, let's, let's just say this, they have, you know, I think they just celebrated like their 100th million subscriber or something like that. So that's, you know, 100 million times nine bucks a month, you know, it's, it's a lot of money, but you know, it's nowhere near what they need. And, and part of it is, is it, you know, this is kind of what I've been thinking about. I understand that, you know, they want to go into this whole original content. That's, you know, they, where a lot of people, you know, make their bread and butter. I mean, to be honest, I think Netflix did the whole original content stuff because they wanted to be taken seriously. Because, right. you know, award, award season especially because, you know, uh, Golden Globes and stuff like that. And, you know, hey, people at the beginning, like a couple of years ago, are like, really, Netflix is getting a nomination for this show or whatever? This actress or actor is getting a show from this Netflix series? Are you, are you kidding me? And they were pretty much looked at as, you know, the kid, the puny kid that wanted to play with the older brother, and the older brother shoot him away. Now they're dominating, and you're like, well, they don't release rate, you know, they don't release the numbers for how many people view and stuff like that. We only get stories of, Hey, stranger things was the most watched Netflix show right. since whenever. So you got to take them really at their word. So it's kind of like it opens your eyes. And me as somebody who I have Netflix, you have Netflix. You have to wonder like, did they just have the right formula? But, you know, went too far in too, too quick. That's exactly what they did. They had the exact right formula, and then it seemed like over the years, they just started to really, really overdo it. I mean, I think that we both get those notifications all the time of new stuff that's on Netflix and new shows and stuff like that. You might like this kind of thing. But I got to tell you, at least for me, and it's not because I don't have a whole lot of time to consume all of the content on Netflix. It's more that when I do have time and I'm sitting down and I'm scrolling, I'm going... Okay, do I really need this? Do I really need to watch this kind of thing? And it's one of those deals more than anything else. Or it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this looks good, but I have this to watch. And that's partially Netflix's problem, too. Like, gee, I'd love to watch Frontier with Jason Momoa, but, you know, the glow just came out. Or the next season of uh, Orange is the New Black. Or, you know, Stranger Things coming up in October, stuff like that. You know, you can't consume, possibly consume all of this stuff. So it's almost like you've done it to yourself, and no wonder people aren't watching some of this stuff. Yeah, and the big thing is you have to look at 
television channels that are dying. And I say that because, you know, cable subscriptions are down by a lot. You know, there are cord cutters now. I'm a cord cutter. I've said many times on the show. So you have to look at, like, what channels are really being affected by not only people cutting their cable subscriptions, but by what also Netflix is doing. And the big reason and the big biggest channel I can think of right now is Comedy Central. Comedy Central has always had, you know, remember every Friday they had the new specials, new hour-long special. Hey, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, Daniel Tosh or whomever, our special. Well, look what Netflix is doing. They're basically saying, you know what? We want to be what Comedy Central was, you know, 5, 10 plus whatever years ago. And we want to have this deal with comedians and put out these original Netflix specials with comedians every Friday. So every Friday, they literally have like a bunch of new specials that go up. Yep. And it's insane. And so it's one of those things where, again, you see Netflix having that, that great idea of, hey, you know, ratings are down, cable subscriptions are down, you know, stuff like that. Let's jump on, you know, let's kind of take what some of these channels have been doing in terms of programming. But they're doing too much. And we talked about this when we talked about Bright last week. We're like, man, this thing looks so expensive. And you just look at all the other shows they got and the other movies that they're doing and all those stuff they're planning. And, you know, Will Smith's not cheap, you know, to put him in no, something. No, he's not. <laughs> and, and, you know, so it's just amazing. And you, I understand Netflix, you want to put all this type of programming out. You want to put out, you know, we never, we never want you to, you know, they never want us as consumers to go to the cupboard and see that it's bare or that, like, something's expired because we've watched it, you know, so many times. So I understand that, but it's just, man, they've you, you got to cut this down, man. If you want, yeah. if you want to do your original programming, make it like fifty percent of your stuff, you know, wait years down the road because you you had the right thing going, man. You know what this is going to do? This is going to allow things like Amazon and Hulu to come in and you know gobble some of that stuff up, man. Right. Because Hulu has ads, so Hulu can you know down the line. Do more shit. And here's the deal with, with Amazon and Hulu, that they're, that they're doing right right now. That doesn't mean they won't make the same mistake, but for right, right now, they're staggering their releases out a little bit more. And Amazon does something a little bit more unique, too, where they have their, their pilot season, where they'll say, here's some new shows that we, wanted, that we want to do. Here's the first episode. Let us know if you like it or not. And I know that's not the be-all, end-all factor of the show coming on Amazon or not. But it's a neat little idea, you know. You get one episode, and if 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 it seems to take off, they, you know, that actually gives them more incentive to do it. And then if it doesn't, they don't. So that's and then like you said, Hulu has ads or not if you want to spend more money. So but they give you that option. But here's the other deal: you talked about you know the dying of cable subscriptions, and that's absolutely true. And that's where you've got to give credit to people like HBO and Stars and and Showtime and what have you. Seeing that and saying, okay, we're going to give you that cord cutter option. So I think what Netflix has really tried to do here, because they've seen that trend, is they're trying to flood the market to kill television in a certain sense. It's almost like, well, if we flood it enough and we give people enough content, especially ad-free, they're just going to stop watching terrestrial television altogether, forcing everybody else to do what we're doing, and then they'll have to do the same thing that we're doing, in a sense. I think that's what, long-term, if you're looking long-term, that's what they think they're going to be able to do, but it's not that easy to kill something that's been around for so, so long, 
And this millennial generation is going to have to get a lot older before we see terrestrial television go completely away, in my estimation. I'm telling you right now, I know this is a nerd podcast, but I've said it on the podcast before, and we're starting to see it happen. Once professional leagues start saying, hey, you few, like, for example, I love the Los Angeles Dodgers. So if Major League Baseball, when they actually have it now, they're like, hey, if you're a Dodgers fan, you can watch the Dodgers by paying X amount a month. And I don't believe you have to have a TV subscription. I think you can do it, do it to like the MLB themselves. So and I think the NBA is starting to do it with their games. So once sports gets diluted to where they don't need that, where they don't need a CBS or an NBC, and we're seeing it now because some of the NFL Thursday night games were on Twitter last year. Right. So and now I think they got moved to, to Amazon or something like it that. Is, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. So once sports really goes – that's it, man. I think that's really it because a lot of people now, man, you know, I know short attention spans, but what is, what's the thing? What's, what do we always hear people talk about? Oh, yeah, man, I spent a whole weekend binging Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or binging the show or whatever, man. And, you know, people want stuff quick. They want to be able to go through a Walking Dead or something like that right. within, you know, a day or a weekend, you know, because it's only 13 episodes well, a season. Let's let's just let's just call it the way it is. I mean, we're tap dancing around it. Let's just call it the way it is. Once the NFL oh, decides yeah. to get off their ass and decide, hey, we're gonna make our NFL Sunday ticket available as a standalone subscription service, not through DirecTV, but through the NFL directly or for some from some other carrier that everybody can get as a cord cutter. It, that's that's the beginning of the end right there because all the other sports are you know the basketball is very popular you know college sports very popular MLB whatever you can just take it down the line but the NFL is the one that is the NFL is the Disney of sports where they hold on to their shit so tightly and these little arrangements that they've made that they've yet to embrace the whole cord cutting thing and once they do that is going to be the beginning of the end. Yeah, man. But, you know, talk about Netflix. A, something that's on Netflix right now is Nightmare Before Christmas. And I'm a huge fan of it. I know you, we talked about it off air that your cousin's a huge fan of it. And so people have been wondering for years, I think, you know, when are we going to get a sequel? Because, it, because there were talks about a possible movie sequel, but of course Tim Burton squashed that. Right. And, of course, you had the video game a couple few years ago, uh, Oogie's Revenge, which, you know, basically kind of was a pseudo sequel well now it turns out that tokyo pop said you know what we're actually going to do a sequel but it's not going to be a movie it's not going to be a tv show we're going to be doing uh, a, a manga version of nightmare before christmas and make that a sequel and make a very, sequel for it it's very very smart to do that too i mean you saw boom did with dark crystal and i think that that's working out for that sequel and when the hollywood reporter broke this news it's going to be called the nightmare before christmas zero's journey and of course it's going to be written by Stuart j levy and also studio dice is going to be involved in the art and, and stuff like that as well but i think doing this as a manga is actually really, really smart because I think it lends itself to the art style. I think it, it lends itself to the, you know, kind of gritty version that Nightmare Before Christmas was. And I mean, it was 1993 that the movie came out. So it, we were talking about, about the fact that it's going to land on the 25th anniversary. Or excuse me, the yeah, the 25th anniversary of this movie. So, I mean, this is one of those things we were just talking about overspending and not spending too much money on stuff and what have you. And guess what? This is how you do it. You know, you don't know how many people are going to want this sequel. You don't know how well-received it would have been on a movie or is it maybe even a television series. So throw out a comic. Throw out a manga. See what happens. Exactly. And here's the thing, too, is 
Say, for instance, now I'm going to, of course, read this. And they said that I believe that they said that the way they're going to release this is they're going to make, I believe, a four-part miniseries or some sort of a miniseries. And then they're going to do a graphic novel. And here's the thing. If it turns out, okay, it wasn't as good or whatever, it doesn't make a difference. Because I think that if they made a movie sequel and it wasn't good... That would be, I think, I think, honestly, even though the first movie movie I love so much, to me, it's one of my top movies of all time, I think it would kind of taint the franchise. Totally. Because, because you know, it's like, you have, I mean, you're, cause there are people out there today that are like, oh, well, you know, uh, Jurassic Park, well, I love the first one, yeah, and they have the second and the third one, and Jurassic World, yeah, well, I don't count those. Or even with the Star Wars movies. You know, oh, I love four, five, six. Well, about one, two, three. Eh, those don't count. Those never existed. Whereas with this, it's like, yeah, a legit sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas doesn't really exist in movie form. So, you know, you can do a, a, a book, you can do a manga, whatever you want, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really, it's one of things where it's out there, but it's like you can kind of tie it to the movie if you want but you don't right. have to because it's not the same sort of media and quite frankly not only that there's much much less press pressure in a comic series sequel than there is in doing another movie or a tv show not just because of the money but because let's face it not everybody's going to be able to be, be exposed to this not not even a lot of fans of this movie from from back in the day aren't even going to know that this exists unless you know we talk about it more kind of thing and the word gets out and what have you because this is Tokyo Pop it's not DC or anybody like that that's putting out that that's going to have this huge marketing blitz on it it's Tokyo Pop and not that they're not popular but again this is a manga series that's not being put out by a major publisher with a major marketing campaign behind it so there's a lot of fans of the movie that aren't going to know a that this exists in B, how to get their hands on it in the first place. Now, that's kind of why we're here. We're going to help you out with that once this does come out in 2018. But the pressure is off here. And, yeah, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But I think you still need to, you know, stay true to the franchise, at least make the characters the way that they're supposed to be and the way that people remember them. So I think in that respect, you do have to do that. But like you said, say this is bad. Doesn't matter because the movie that you loved was still great. And you don't have to read this again. And you won't be exposed to it in reruns either. Exactly. And, you know, speaking of movies, James, our final story, we're going to dive into the Valiant Universe. And, you know, they're getting ready to kick off their whole movie cinematic universe. Of course, they had the whole web series of Bat in the Sun, the Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe. But in terms of the big budget movies, they found their Eternal Warrior. Yeah, and the Eternal Warrior himself is who ended up breaking this news. Dave Batista himself on Twitter responded to someone asking him about the Eternal Warrior movie. And he basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, he basically said, yeah, you know, we're just trying to make sure we get a script together that's, you know, true to the fans and, and the character and everything like that. And he basically said, yeah, this is happening. And it's since been confirmed by multiple outlets that, yeah, Dave Batista looks like he's going to be the Eternal Warrior. And one of those outlets actually being Valiant themselves, so this is legit. Yeah, and then the the thing that's not legit, and we want to put this out there right now, we don't typically deal in rumors, but I just want to put it out there. There have been the talks, quote-unquote, that Jared Leto is going to play Bloodshot. Oh, now, please, no. I'm just going to say this right now, and I don't care if you tell me it's typecasting or whatever, and I know he probably doesn't have the time to do it, but John Bernthal should be the damn Bloodshot. Let's just put yeah. it out there right now. He would be perfect, not just because he did so good with Punisher, but because he's got the look, he's got the attitude, he could play both the emotional and, you know, badass side of Bloodshot, 
the dude is in the right shape too. Come on, Jared Leto. He's good in certain things, but he's not even in the right shape to play Bloodshot. I, I, I can't see Jared. When I think Bloodshot, I don't see Jared Leto playing him. I, I really don't, man. And, you know, so I, I'm just thinking like, who else could there be? I think uh, Scott Lang, I think would be a great Bloodshot as well. Uh, you know, but I think that when you look at just who could play Bloodshot and all these other characters in the Valiant Universe, you know, it's 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 weird. It's it's odd. It's kind of one of the things too, man. Where it's like we haven't seen the web series yet. So what if Jason David Frank just absolutely fucking kills it? Yeah, and I mean that's the thing too. I, I can't remember the guy's name that played uh, Deadshot in Arrow, who's playing Ninjak in the Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe. But I, I mean, you you see the you see the stills that they've released and. He looks like a pretty damn good ninja, Colin King. So, and I mean, th- these are good actors too. So it's not like they won't kill it. And I'm not sure. I mean, we have, there hasn't been a whole lot of chatter about the release of this web series. So I don't know what the status is on that. We'll, we'll we'll check on that for you. But you're right. I mean, it could be that somebody just kills it and they just decide to move forward with them. Who knows? Yeah, man. So I mean, getting Batista in there is great because again, you get a big name. Uh, you you get the hype surrounding this Valiant universe. And again, it's kind of like what DC did when they said, here's all these big names we're getting for our universe and stuff like that when they were starting out. And you look at that and you're like, they wanted to do that. And I think Valiant especially needed to get a name by like Batista because it's like, okay, let's show how serious we are with this. When you get a guy who, you know, of course he's going to be in a new Blade Runner movie He's, of course, part of Guardians of the Galaxy, which, of course, there's rumors going around. And this is why it's interesting that he's entering another comic book universe at this time, because there's rumors that they might. You know, we got Infinity War catching up, and I believe one of the big things in Infinity War is the Guardians get killed by Thanos. So here's the thing. I know they got Guardians 3, and they're planning that out, but there have been talks that, hey, maybe Infinity War is going to be the last time we see... This Guardians, this current Guardians team, at least in this form, so maybe Drax dies? I don't know. Well, think about it, too. This isn't the first time that we've heard from Drax that he would lay down his life to avenge his family with Thanos. Thanos. So, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, we're probably going to get that face-off at some point. Maybe not directly, maybe at least indirectly. And and he would gladly lay down his life to avenge his family, so it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that at least some of the Guardians die in the Infinity War movie. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what they do. And that, yeah, that would certainly free up his time. But he's become such a legit name. I mean, I'll throw the Bond movies in there, too. He's He's been attached to those as well. So, I mean, this guy has had some serious stuff ever since Guardians has come out. So this is, a, this is a bigger name than I think a lot of people realize to kick off their universe and a great start for Valiant. Yeah, plus here's, a, here's an idea. Here's a name I want to throw out at you because you know, we're trying to think of names for who could play Bloodshot and some of these other Valiant characters. So I'm, I'm going to throw out – I want to throw out one name to you. And I know that this person currently does some you know Marvel Netflix stuff, but what about – Vincent D'Onofrio for Archer and Armstrong. That could be interesting. I could see that working because he, I mean, the guy's a chameleon, so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is possible. He's also got that new series coming out, Ghost Wars on sci-fi That's true, as well. yeah. So I don't, well, I don't know how much of his time that's going to eat up either. So, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility I'm just trying, he could be involved. Because I'm just trying to think of, like, names of people who, like, already aren't 
really, it, you know, it's one of those things where we watch so many superhero shows and so many superhero movies and comic book films that when it comes to like deciding, oh, who could be a great person for this or person for that, you know, oh, well, what about this or that? You know what I'm saying? Like, and bananas that, you know, the only names we can think about are ones that are attached to, you know, comic book films. So it's right. hard to think of people outside that realm. Uh, I'm going to throw out, here's an idea for, for a bloodshot. What about, uh, what about Idris Elba? Ooh, that could be interesting. I could see, yeah, he's got the look. I mean, you you see what he's what he's done, and and of course we haven't seen Dark Tower yet, but once we do, and I mean, it certainly got that that gritty edge to it, and of course Hemdall as well. I think he could do it, man. I think that would be very very interesting if they if they threw him in there in the mix. Yeah, man. So I mean, well, especially if they do kind of like they've been doing lately with the Bloodshot stuff with. You know, you have Viet Man and Tank Man. You put Idris Elba in there, maybe team up with somebody else. Or if you want to just do a, just a, again, just a solo Bloodshot movie, put Idris Elba in there. I think it'd be great. I, I definitely think that that could work. He's he's definitely got the chops for it. I think Ninjak's going to be the harder cast because they definitely want somebody with martial arts experience or at least training in that regard. So I think that's going to be the one that's going to give them the most trouble as far as casting goes. Yeah, man. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do in terms of casting. But that's going to do it for Nerd News. And come up next, the creative team behind First Strike from IAW is going to join us to talk everything Transformers and Cobra and all the other good G.I. Joe stuff. That's coming your way next. This is Warren Simons, the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, one of our most talked-about topics coming out of San Diego Comic-Con 2017 had to be the first strike panel. We've been talking about the IDW's first strike for a while, and it is finally here. And we're talking to the two writers, Margaret Scott and David Rodriguez. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. Doing great. Very happy to be here. All right. Now, Margaret, you've done a lot of work on Transformers, and David, you just wrote an issue of Mask recently as well. So what's it like to kind of dive into first strike and get to work with this entire cast of characters now? Well, it's been really fun. I mean, um, I've always wanted to work with G.I. Joe and some of the other Hasbro properties. And so me being able to come at it from the Transformers angle and David being able to come at it from the mask angle. I've also written a little bit of the Micronauts. We're both big fans of G.I. Joe and, you know, throwing Ram and some others in there. It, it was really nice to be able to sort of bounce these properties off each other. Yeah, getting to play with all the toys all at once. I mean, that's that's the dream, right? Like you get to... You grow up with these guys and you grow up with these characters and then you have this one event where they all get to come together and you get to do this big awesome thing where they're all fighting or talking and hanging out and doing all this cool stuff and it's been a great time. And David, this isn't the first time you've written something involving Transformers, of course. People may know you wrote for the video game Transformers War for Cybertron. So when it comes to writing characters and multiple forms of entertainment, what's some things you feel that have to be presented in both places, especially when it comes to Transformers. For the Transformers, um, especially, what's most important is you have to know the characters because no matter what medium they're in, Starscream should be Starscream. Like, he behaves a certain way. There's certain qualities to his character. Mm -hmm. Even though he evolves as he's evolved now, right? He's the ruler of Cybertron. There's still just some things that are inherently will always be Starscream. And so knowing the license, knowing the character, and being able to deliver that and both video games and in the comics, I think um, is the most important part for me is, is knowing them. So knowing what they do in any given situation and how they act and all that sort of thing. 
We talked about the panel right at the beginning, and I actually wanted to touch on something that John Barber said at the first strike panel at Comic-Con, where he said that Optimus Prime would once again be kind of a central figure in why the events of First Strike are happening. Do you both agree with that? And if you do, what kind of insight can you give us on it? Yeah, well, definitely Optimus's annexation of Earth. For those of you who don't know, Optimus has come to Earth and sort of claimed that it uh, it belongs as part of the Cybertronian Council of Worlds, kind of on no one's authority but his own. So that yeah, has led me. to... Yeah, he did not ask. Yeah, but he didn't Earth was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing yeah. this, just wanted to let you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Earth's like, oh, well, you're, you're 30 feet tall, okay, sure. So the events of First Strike are the people who were like, oh, no, not so much um, about Optimus' plan and decide to uh, disagree violently. But you definitely get a lot of Optimus Prime FaceTime as well and sort of get to see a lot of characters kind of coming out and agreeing with or really challenging his actions and and his right to to do what he thinks is best, which is kind of nice because it's not that Optimus is a bad guy, but Optimus is a wartime leader. And I felt like we really got to explore the idea of what do soldiers do when the war is over? What do leaders do when the war is over? And and who sort of works well in that situation and who doesn't? And now that we're coming out of revolution or entering this next phase of first strike with the Hasbro universe, what are some things you both feel are important to get across to readers in issue one of first strike? Part of just kind of playing off what Margaret said is that understanding that both sides have valid points. Like, I mean, Optimus had a a good reason, you know, for doing what he did. He thought he was protecting earth. Um, but like we said, he didn't bother to ask anyone. And so now earth is just kind of rolling with it, trying to figure out how they're going to survive in this new future, which kind of plays into what is happening in first strike is now they are, they're entering this larger arena. They're becoming part of this, you know, the council in space that didn't, that they didn't really, they're not super equipped to deal with. Um, and they're sort of all playing catch up and doing that. Like, how do they operate on this, this galactic stage sort of thing? And the people who are trying to stop them, you know, Colton has good reason for what he's doing, even though he's going about it in questionable ways, which is what causes the conflict between him and Scarlet. And so I think all of that really does get set up in the first issue. And I think encapsulates a lot of what's just happened over the last year since revolution. Yeah, I really hope we get a certain amount of resonance because I think there's there's something in the fact that there are so many groups with competing agendas in this in this series that you know align and then unalign um, in really neat ways. I feel like I hope that resonates with our readers because I don't know, like there's something about like modern life right now where it feels like everything is changing so fast and you see the rise of like whole new industries and whole new countries are important and then. You know, every news day is some explosion of news. And I, it sort of seems like you're kind of running as fast as you can to sustain place. And I think there's a little bit of that same feel for our characters of trying to, to figure out what's going on as everything is sort of shifting around them. Yeah, and where do they fit in when you have 30-foot robots that right. are immortal who are making decisions for you? Like, what part does G.I. Joe have in that? Like, where, where do they fit in? that part where does the regular person fit in and we don't deal with a lot of regular people but we're hoping to reflect some of that and in, in what the what the actions that they're taking and like how far they will go to kind of protect the the world as they see it it was definitely the gi joes who sort of needed to be our average joes 
like in this crazy Hasbro world. It's true. Absolutely. We're talking to writers Margaret Scott and David Rodriguez of IDW's First Strike. Of course, you can get your hands on it on August the 9th. And I want to touch on that kind of everyday citizen aspect of what you were just talking about, because if you were a citizen who actually had the opportunity to vote on whether or not to join this Cybertronian Council of Worlds, would, what would you actually choose to do? I don't know if I'm emotionally prepared for this question. <laughs> I didn't know we'd have to do, go here. We're going to talk about robots punching stuff. We get deep on this show. I guess so. Um, I'm going to let Margaret go first. I'm going to let her think Oh, about yeah, it. thanks. David's going to gather his thoughts real quick. He'll be with us in a second. This isn't a huge spoiler, I guess. I guess I would essentially take Scarlet's position. I agree with my protagonist. Um, but <laughs> if you don't like how it happened, you kind of kind of have to, just because that genie can't get put back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Right. So you might as well sort of, if we join, if Earth joins the Council of Worlds, we at least have some say. But it's not like if Earth doesn't join the Council of Worlds. You know, the diaries are going to be like, oh, you're isolationist now? Well, bye. Okay. Like, we'll respect your boundaries. <laughs> um, I just sort of think that you can't undo, I don't want to say like galactic globalization, but I guess I'm going yeah. to say galactic globalization. <laughs> <laughs> all right, David. Yeah, pressure's on, man. For me because, all right, here's the pressure. So here's the, here's the hard part is like, I understand why the choices were made. And so I'm trying to put myself in the position of someone who's like, well, do I know that the Transformers mean well? Do I know that Optimus usually means well? Or do I just have to, like, put my house back together, you know, every time? Yeah, do you care that Optimus means well? Yeah, do I care that he means well? And so I think in the grand scheme, I probably would still, I would vote a hesitant yes, because I would be hoping that at least having seen the horrors that follow the Transformers around, at least maybe now we get some protection out of it. But I don't think that I would trust them. I think I would still feel like they may accidentally cause more damage. And do I even care that they're well-intentioned? Like, you know, everything's getting broken every time they come over. It's kind of interesting because those are a little bit two different questions where it's like, will we join the Council of Worlds? Yeah. Are you okay with Optimus Prime being like autocrat in chief? No. True. No. (laughs) No. I think we're against that one. (laughs) Josh, like Autobot or Transformers insurance becomes a thing. Oh, yes. That would be, we, they should be Autobot insurance. Yeah, I mean, if everybody's house is getting blown up every, like, two days, basically, I mean, why not? <laughs> Plus, you know, you've got somebody that's probably going to transform into a voting machine anyway, and there's that whole deal. <laughs> oh, oh, it's getting dark. It's getting dark now. <laughs> that's our next event. <laughs> oh man so of course you know hasbro toys since we're talking about them they've been a big part of people's lives just for many many years and decades but if you two could pick one non-hasbro toy to help lead the charge against cobra and all these other enemies in first strike who would you choose and why oh non-hasbro toy Now they own everything, right? Like, I'm trying to remember what toys they don't have. <laughs> yeah, I know. They don't have. Yeah, walk in their booth at Comic-Con I'm... and try and find something that's not owned by them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw out there that I feel like 
Wonder Woman would do pretty well in this situation. If we're going to say that she's an action figure, because I kind of want to have Starscream versus a thing that compulses you to tell the truth. That would be amazing. (laughs) And then there's also the classic sort of magic versus science thing, where it's like, oh, everyone knows that, like, magic trumps science for reasons. So, like, that would be kind of neat. This smells like a crossover to me, actually. I'm just picturing Starscream. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like um, when you just see I, her with like Optimus Prime foot, sort of, you know, like. That'd <laughs> no, be great, and like with Scarlet, that'd be awesome. They'd be besties. Yeah, I think I'd have to go just for galactic scale. We'd have to find a way to cross over with Star Wars. Oh yeah, just to, oh, yes. just to make it the space battles. Just to have so many toys, and then again, it would just mimic my my childhood again. And so, yeah, Star Wars. Millennium Falcon leading the charge, figuring this out. I would love to see an ATST on Cybertron. Like, yeah. that would be pretty awesome. Yes. You're with me now. You're now you're getting it. Yes. I'm just picturing. I'm just picturing those classic like 1970s toys. They're like three f- inches tall, basically, and them teaming up with like with Micronauts. It's like this little mini Millennium Falcon flying with the Micronauts. That's basically the description of my childhood, actually. So yeah, I've been there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I've definitely been there. Now. One other popular character that got a lot of chatter coming out of the panel as well was Unicron, and that was the big reveal at the end of the panel, but it seems to be a lot of misconception about exactly what's going to be going on with Unicron and First Strike and everything like that, so let, let's clear the air right now. Is there, Are we talking ongoing series here? Are we talking appearances in the First Strike universe somewhere? Try and clear the air as much as you can about that, because there's been a lot of stuff reported. How about... No. We're just going to let that speculation fester for a while. <laughs> Read first strike and you'll yeah. find out. That's, that was that a nice try, like though. That's very, like... I'm here to make my best efforts, and that's what I do. <laughs> a reasonable person would tell us. That's what it was presented as. A reasonable person would answer yeah. this question and would clear the well, air. Because you sort of framed it as, like, well, we all agree we're going to release this information. Like, and so now it's away. <laughs> Come on, we're all friends here. Yeah, there's, yeah. Not, there's, there's no, no microphones or recording devices. Nobody's here. listening anyway. <laughs> we're very excited about what Unicron may or may not be bringing to wherever he shows up at the end of this event. Yeah. Oh, okay. So These yeah, we have mayhem and destruction, right? <laughs> oh, of course. These tap dancing lessons brought to you by Margaret Scott. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, before we let you guys go, I just want to talk about the R and Max Dunbar real quick. What excites you the most about working with Max, and what have you seen so far of his work that you just it just excites you about the book? Wow. Uh, you know, I so, knew Max oh. could do the action, and there's like. Yeah. There's a lot of amazing act- Like, there was literally a panel where I think we wrote, like, a million ninjas pop out of a Transformer. And it was what? like, okay. And there were a million <laughs> okay. ninjas. <laughs> like, but I didn't expect that he could nail the comedy so well. There's actually quite a bit of comedy running through this book, especially the Joes have, like, a lot of great banter. I think he just really hits that, the, the acting and the expressions quite nicely. Yeah, he, like, I think I said in one interview, we're, we haven't found the thing he can't draw yet. 
and we keep asking for ridiculous things because, you know, there's parts of uh, Cybertron that have never been explored, and we talk about it, and he just is able to draw all of those things. And um, he's alarmingly fast. I will say that, too. Um, he is. There is an email chain with us where it's like, dang it, Max is really fast. Hurry up! <laughs> <laughs> he is outpacing he really the two writers. And that part where we defeated Unicron with the power of love, like, I didn't even know how that would be. <laughs> I, I don't know how he sold that. I didn't think we could pull off the Transformer Care Bear stare, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nailed it. Oh, wow. All the Autobots, like, standing together in a line, holding hands, and, like, the Autobot symbol comes bursting out of their chests. And everything they turn on their headlights. Great. You've got you've got you've got you've got Soundwave out there. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, You know, holding himself up. I guess I don't know. Oh, they sing that Smurf song about goodness makes the badness go away. It's great. <laughs> A lot of crossovers here. Oh wow! Yeah, next year's event. Speaking of which, it's probably the biggest crossover of the year. It's IDW's First Strike. First issue going to be available, New Comic Book Day on August the 9th at your local shops and digital retailers. And make sure you pick up that first issue because it'll also have the entire, you know, what crossovers you're going to want to pick up when all the issues are coming out as well. We'll be part of that too. It's writer Margaret Scott and David Rodriguez. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having us. Thank you guys. It's been fun. So, you know, James, we were talking about what toys that were non-Hasbro that we would put into First Strike. And I'm not sure if this is a Hasbro toy. I mean, again, as it was mentioned, they pretty much own everything. They're basically the Disney of toys right now. So um, I would go with a Teddy Ruxpin, and I would make wow. the cassette tape in his chest or his stomach a bomb. Wow. That is an odd, odd choice. I must say. Although I was kind of surprised that nobody said Turtles to keep it in the IDW family. Yeah. Well, I mean, Turtles are, you know, they're battling Dimension X at the trial of Krang. You know, they're busy. They do have a lot to deal with, that's for sure. <laughs> they really, really do. But it was fun talking to them, man, about First Strike, of course, from IDW. And I'm very excited about this. Again, talking about how, hey, Earth is now pretty much being, in a sense, forced into this, you know, yep. Cybertronian rule and Optimus Prime, as it was mentioned is a wartime leader so you know what's going to happen and you know what's going to happen with cobra and all these other different things so i'm very fascinated man i gotta tell you this revolution was such an awesome and amazing intro to this whole hasbro you know universe basically and this whole phase system that idw has going and i cannot wait for phase two and first strike and they showed us how they could do it so so well with revolution and then you're bringing pretty much the still people that were still in the revolution family into First Strike and, and having Merigret and David write this one with Max on the art. But then, you know, the, the people that you love from Revolution aren't going away either because they're going to be involved in the tie-ins and stuff as well. So it's like you're putting the band back together. You're just giving everybody different instruments. It's awesome. Exactly. And also, this being our 174th episode, James, I actually do have some major news I have to tell. It's actually breaking personal news for our listeners. So... Next week, our 175th episode will be my last episode of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It'll be the last week I'll be working for and with the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And the reason being, well, for most parts, I'll go into it next week when we just, you know, when it's my last episode, we're going to spend a lot of time on the show just talking about my time on the show and what lies ahead for everything. But uh, I'm going to be moving to Los Angeles. So 
Uh, you know, it was just pretty much came down to a whole thing with scheduling and James and I were thinking of ways where I could stay on stuff like that. But with everything I have set to be going on in Los Angeles, just our schedules wouldn't match up. And so next week is going to be my last, last show. And it's just going to be been an amazing three and a half plus years. But before I start crying and, you know, cause there's gonna be a lot of that next week, I'm going to tell you right now. I just first off just want to thank James just for going on this adventure with me and also you the fans for listening every week <clears throat> bringing you guys great content every week is wonderful James is still going to continue the show after I'm gone so be sure to listen but hey while I'm still here now and even when I'm gone be sure to hit us up on social media facebook.com slash down and nerdy you're going to find a bunch of new stuff we post there our reviews as well also, we're on Twitter at Down and Nerdy Seven Five Seven. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and even Twitch at Merk with One Arm. And I'm at James A. Switham. That's W I T H A M. And yeah, find out all this information at Down and Nerdy Podcast.com. It'll all be right there for you. And we'll have a bunch of stuff going up there, especially for Nick's last show. We'll have a bunch of stuff going up on the website as well, all at downandnerdypodcast.com. And yes, I will give a, a much longer statement myself. Definitely going to save that one for next week, though. <laughs> Just don't want to cry, do you? I'm, I'm saving it for next week and bringing Gatorade. <laughs> it's got the electrolytes. <laughs> got to keep hydrated, man. Exactly, man. I mean, the studio is going to be flooded with tears. Luckily, uh, <laughs> you know, look, there's enough space underneath the door to where the liquid can go out, so we're not going to be like... You know, seeing the Titanic where the captain's like in the, in the cabin in the quarters and all the water just comes crashing in, basically. All right, I'll bring a kayak too. All right, I mean, and, and don't forget a life jacket because remember you can't swim. This so, is true. Yeah. So remember to bring the life jacket. But as always, everybody, until we hear we talk to you next week. Pray safe, comic greeting, and always bag and board your comics. <laughs>